It's around this time every year that I partake in an annual tradition. At the time of writing this, it's the 1st of October. It's finally the start of the Halloween season, and the perfect time to pick up one of my all-time favorite books. Admittedly, this isn't much of a comfort book for me. In fact, I'm pretty sure it was this novel that incited my phobia of ghost children when I first read it back in high school. But all the same, I can't think of a better way to spend this season than to read a book about a family who is doomed to weather a fantastically cruel Colorado winter within the confines of a hauntingly remote hotel. And that, of course, brings us to this week's topic. I think it's safe to say that most of us know this haunt's general story. One of an automotive tycoon who escaped to a sunny Rocky Mountain hillside after a grim TB diagnosis. Of course, we all know the Grand Hotel that was built in the wake of his recovery. And let's not forget the author, who dreamt up the book I'm reading now. Now, for many, this haunt is more charming than it is chilling. Nestled into the heart of Estes Park, Colorado, guests can enjoy everything from fine dining and nightlife to remote hikes within Rocky Mountain National Park, all before coming back to their room for a well-deserved night of sleep. But you and I know all too well that rest does not come easy within the walls of the renowned Stanley Hotel, because, in the words of Stephen King, this inhuman place makes human monsters. I'm Courtney Hayes, and you're listening to Haunts. Stay tuned. It was a brisk autumn evening in 1974 when a lone car pulled into the empty parking lot. It was the last night of the season for the Stanley Hotel, and the very last of her guests were about to check in. When they walked into the main lobby, Stephen and his wife Tabitha were met with an eerie silence. Aside from a few lingering staff, while it appeared that they were entirely alone, inside a Rocky Mountain resort that was built for hundreds. Later, the King's suspicions were confirmed when they were told that they were the only guests checked in. They quite literally had the entire place to themselves. Now I'm sure that this concept sparked at least a bit of joy in Stephen's heart. You see, at the time of this rather impromptu trip, King had been working out the details of a novel. But Darkseid, as he had called it, had been giving him trouble, and he was suffering from a severe case of writer's block. It was for this reason that the couple made last-minute hotel arrangements and took the hour-long drive from Boulder up into Estes Park. A change of scenery, he thought, would surely help his case. And if it didn't, the peace and quiet of an empty hotel surely would. During his night at the Stanley, King followed closely the footsteps of Mr. Jack Torrance. He and Tabitha had dinner in an empty dining room that was filled only by the sound of canned classical music. Then, after Tabitha went to bed, King retired to the hotel bar, where he had a drink poured by a bartender named Grady. He wandered alone through the empty halls of the Stanley, guided only by the colorfully patterned carpet below his feet. Eventually, he found himself outside of room 217, his room for the evening. He quietly let himself in and made his way into the bathroom, where, all at once, he was met with a sickening suspicion. Someone, or rather something, was hiding in the bathtub. 
So he mustered up all the courage he could and pulled back the pink curtain. But alas, no one was there. Someone must have died here. The thought popped into his head before he could stop it. And with that, it was time for bed. This wouldn't be a restful slumber for Stephen King. Instead, he was plagued by visions of his son being attacked by a snake somewhere off in the hotel. He awoke in a cold sweat a short while later and eventually gave up on the concept of sleep entirely. So, the author got up and lit a cigarette, taking a seat in front of the window that overlooked the Rockies. Here, he found that his writer's block was gone, although Darkseid was no longer at the center of his attention. Instead, he began plotting what is likely the greatest novel of his career, and it's all thanks to the empty hotel that was slowly coming to life around him. This story, as I have just told you now, is likely what put the Stanley Hotel on the map. But the ghost, lurking around nearly every corner of this grand resort, were here long before Stephen King's night in room 217. Perhaps the most active of these spirits are none other than F.O. and Flora Stanley, which makes sense when you think about it. After all, it was Mr. Stanley who founded the hotel back in 1909. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, Freeland Oscar Stanley was diagnosed with tuberculosis in 1903. Now, at the time, one of the less evasive treatments for this ailment was exposure to sunlight and a lot of fresh air. So, at his doctor's orders, F.O. and his wife Flora moved out to Colorado, and with an average of over 300 sunny days per year, coupled with the crisp mountain air, there really wasn't a better place for Stanley to seek refuge during his recovery. In no time, Stanley was feeling well once again, and to their surprise, the couple had grown quite fond of the sunny mountain town called Estes Park. In fact, by the time he had made a full recovery, the Stanleys had already made plans to build a summer home right there in town, and Freeland, with his ever-entrepreneurial mindset, began brainstorming ways to capitalize on the views that had quite literally saved his life. And with that, the Stanley Hotel came to be, at first, it was likely nothing more than an idea, a concept buried deep in Freeland's mind. But by July 4, 1909, the Stanley Hotel was opening its doors to the highest members of American society. In the century since its grand opening, the Stanley Hotel has played host to many notable personas, including Teddy Roosevelt, the unsinkable Molly Brown, and even John Philip Sousa. And with a guest list like that, well, it's no wonder why. F.O. Stanley had been so proud of his exclusive mountain resort. Today, the Stanleys still play an active role in the hotel's daily affairs. Only now they do so from the other side. According to several of my sources, F.O. Stanley is most often seen walking through the main lobby, almost as if he is greeting each and every guest as they check into the hotel. Flora's ghost, on the other hand, spends a great deal of time in the ballroom, 
where a beautiful antique piano is sitting on display. You see, back in her heyday, Flora had been an accomplished concert pianist, and that very piano was a cherished gift from her husband, one that she was known to play for hours on end. Today, hotel staff and guests alike often report hearing the sound of piano music echoing from the ballroom late at night. But upon their investigation, they find that the room is utterly empty. That is, except for the old piano, sitting there in the corner, playing a haunting melody on its own accord. They say that the Stanley Hotel is like Disney World, but for ghosts. And if you want my opinion, that fact is thanks to two of this haunt's key features. Let's focus our attention on the basement for a moment. Sitting directly below the resort, there is a mass deposit of limestone. And from a paranormal research point of view, that is really quite exciting. You see, there is a theory in metaphysics alleging that limestone may just have the ability to attract paranormal phenomena. They say that limestone is a substance that can absorb and release electromagnetic and psychic energy, meaning that, at least in theory, limestone acts like a magnet for the paranormal. Now, let's put a pin in that for a moment and head back upstairs. I'd like to show you yet another element that may just be giving the Stanley Hotel a paranormal charge. Centered at the heart of this hotel sits a massive grand staircase, one that's lined from floor to ceiling with ornate mirrors. Now, even if this is your first foray into the space of paranormal research, you're likely well aware that mirrors are often said to be portals between our world and the great beyond. This is especially true when two or more mirrors are facing one another. Why, you might ask? Well, the general consensus among paranormal researchers is that if a mirror on its own acts as a portal, then two mirrors facing each other would act as a highway, one that invites spirits from far and wide into a centralized space. Which brings me to my next point. If the rumors are true, the Stanley Hotel's grand staircase is actually a paranormal vortex, and as such, it has been the subject of various haunting claims. In fact, many report encounters with apparitions and spectral orbs while traversing along the staircase, and some go as far as to say that they've caught such activity on camera. Now, we of course discussed this activity at length during our explorations of spirit photography back in episode 6, so if you missed it, I highly encourage you to go back and give it a listen. That episode provides a bit more context here, and I think it really brings this haunt into a whole new perspective. Don't worry, I'll have episode 6 linked in today's show notes for your future listening pleasure. But for now, I'll just say this. This collection of antique mirrors, along with the limestone deposit below, is all too likely fueling the flames of this ghostly fire. For those brave enough to stay the night at the Stanley Hotel, you may be interested to know that there are several haunted accommodations for you to book. Now, if you want my two cents on the matter, I'm sure that every room in this hotel has its ghost, but there are a select few 
that are somewhat more active. Take, for instance, the aforementioned Room 217, which is allegedly haunted by the spirit of Elizabeth Wilson. Now, Wilson, who worked as a housekeeper for the Stanley during her life, had a rather unfortunate accident inside this room. You see, she had been cleaning in 217 one afternoon, when there was a massive explosion. Apparently, she was lighting one of the Asseltine lanterns that furnished the room, when she accidentally ignited the blast. Fortunately, she did survive the incident, but not without sustaining serious injuries. And as you can imagine, it was quite the traumatic event for poor Elizabeth. Perhaps it's for this reason that the spirit of Elizabeth Wilson remains in 217, where she continues with her housekeeping duties. For example, some guests have reported that their bags have been unpacked by Elizabeth's spirit, while others have claimed to see her physically cleaning items in the room. And hey, for all we know, maybe it was Elizabeth Wilson herself who spooked Stephen King in the bathroom on that night back in 1974. Now, 217, while it's likely the most famous, is not the only haunted room at the Stanley Hotel. In fact, the entirety of the fourth floor is said to be incredibly active. You see, back when the hotel solely operated during the summer season, the fourth floor functioned as a quarters for employees and their families, meaning that very many children once lived up in this makeshift penthouse. According to a handful of my sources, these children may still be lingering here. As a matter of fact, guests will often complain about the sound of children playing in the fourth floor hallways during the wee hours of the morning, even when there are no children staying on that floor. Apparently, this sort of activity is so common that this area of the hotel has been given a rather sinister nickname. The children's hallway is how the staff refers to it, at least. Now, it's worth mentioning that the ghostly activity continues inside the fourth-floor guest rooms as well. Room 401, for example, is known to be haunted by a malevolent spirit who predominantly occupies the closet. In fact, many guests report that the closet door will open and shut at random throughout their stay. And if that wasn't eerie enough, then it may be worth mentioning that this entity, while unfriendly to all guests, is particularly disrespectful toward women. So much so that it has the tendency to grope, the female guest staying in that room. Now, in that same vein, the guests staying in room 407 also commonly complain of ghostly touching. And as chilling as that may be, I will say that this activity is a bit more comforting than the haunts of room 401. You see, the spirits occupying room 407 will supposedly tuck in hotel guests at night. Creepy, I know but it's definitely better than an inhuman monster staring at you from the closet. Now, I had the pleasure of staying the night at the Stanley back in the fall of 2021. And for what it's worth, I can personally attest to the activity, as well as the stories coming out of room 407. But more on that at the end of the episode.
Now, I feel as though we can't discuss the many haunts of the Stanley Hotel without at least touching on its infamous concert hall. As I mentioned previously, Flora Stanley was an accomplished concert pianist, so it only makes sense that the Stanleys built an elaborate concert hall just outside the hotel. And if the rumors are true, well, this is likely one of the most active areas on the property. As near as I can tell, the Stanley's Concert Hall is haunted by two resident spirits, each of whom come with their own unique lore. Let's start with the spirit who goes simply by the name Paul. Not unlike Elizabeth Wilson, this spirit is said to be a former Stanley Hotel employee, one who is still taking his job very seriously. You see, Paul fancies himself as the hotel's night watchman, and as such, he enforces a strict 11pm curfew. Now, as you can imagine, the concert hall doesn't exactly wind down by 11pm every single night. Between live concerts, ghost tours, and investigations, well, it's not exactly uncommon for a bystander or two to linger in the concert hall after this supposed curfew. But no matter, Paul is more than happy to take things into his own hands, often telling people to get out if he finds them in the concert hall after the 11 o'clock hour. Now, the second spirit, who is said to be occupying the concert hall, has a somewhat more tragic backstory. Lucy, as they call her, is said to be the spirit of a runaway child, who at one point used the concert hall as a refuge from the bitter cold nights that are so common during winter in Colorado. Now, if my memory serves me right, the guides who run the Stanley Hotel's ghost tours believe that Lucy and Paul knew each other during life, and it was he who sent Lucy out into the cold on one particularly frigid evening. To be clear, I don't think that Paul wanted any harm to come to the girl. He was just doing his job by removing trespassers from the building. But even still, poor Lucy didn't make it to morning. Today, Lucy continues to seek refuge inside the concert hall. And according to one of my sources at least, she is more than happy to participate in paranormal investigations. In fact, Lucy is known to communicate using the flashlight method, which, as many of you know, involves the spirit manipulation of a mag light to answer a series of yes or no questions. Simply put, Lucy can engage in conversation by tapping the flashlight investigators present to her. Oh, and to Paul's dismay, these investigations often go on well after curfew. Okay, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, I myself stayed at the Stanley for a single night back in September of 2021. And not to brag or anything, but I stayed the night alone in room 407. For some context here, my parents and I were going to Colorado for my childhood best friend's wedding. And to my delight, the venue was only a hop, skip, and a jump away from Estes Park. So when we sent back the RSVPs, I casually mentioned to my parents that we should stay an extra night and book a room at the Stanley Hotel. My dad, who has always been a fearful believer of the paranormal, reluctantly agreed to this request, 
if only because he's an avid Stephen King fan. Although, he did make it quite clear to me that he had no interest in staying on the fourth floor. Now, as you can imagine, I wanted the full haunted experience. So, instead of agreeing to stay on the third floor, where my parents had booked their accommodations, I decided to enter into the lottery system to stay in one of the, quote, haunted rooms. So, fast forward a few months, to the night we checked into the Stanley. As I approached the desk and gave the concierge my name, I was told that I would, in fact, be staying on the fourth floor. She read me the legal disclaimers, telling me that they would not be held liable if something happened during my stay, nor would they refund me in the event that I decided to check out early. Then she simply slid me the keycard for room 407, and told me not to be surprised if something tucked me in when I got in bed that night. Now, I hate to burst any bubbles, but I should mention that nothing touched me while I was trying to sleep that evening. However, what I will say is that the activity in this room is really quite intense. For instance, my bathroom door opened several times throughout the evening. I heard footsteps that seemed to be coming from inside my room. And at one point, I even heard children laughing out in the hallway. But the strangest activity happened just after I checked in. It was right after I dropped my bags off at the room and headed downstairs to the patio to join my parents for a pre-dinner cocktail. Now, to be very clear, this whole event happened right after we placed our orders. Our drinks hadn't even hit the table yet. To put it bluntly, we were stone-cold sober when my dad started staring at a window up on the fourth floor. Curious, I of course followed his gaze, and to my surprise, I saw the lights flickering in one of the fourth floor rooms. My room, by the looks of it. Now, whether it be denial or sheer disbelief, my dad had been quite adamant that it couldn't have been my room. Someone had to have been in there. Someone was messing with the lights. So, ever the investigator, I told my dad to keep an eye on that window before excusing myself from the table. My mom followed as I walked up the four flights of stairs, and before long, we found ourselves outside of room 407. I opened the door, and to my slight disappointment, we found that the lights were not flickering after all. So, I walked over to the window and waved down at my dad. But, even from four stories up, I could tell that he had a shocked expression on his face. He pulled his phone out of his pocket, and a moment later mine was ringing in my hand. I answered, but before I could even say hello, I heard his voice on the line. It stopped the second you opened the door. This episode of Haunts was written and produced by me, Courtney Hayes. If you've been enjoying the show so far, I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a review. A lot of work goes into each episode, and supporting the show in this way really helps us reach more listeners each week. It's entirely free and takes about 30 seconds, and it would genuinely mean the world to me. Also, if you're interested in learning more about today's topic... I greatly encourage you to check out the show notes section on our website at hauntscast.com. This is the location where I share my sources and provide any visual aid that may be referenced during the show. Finally, I would love to connect with you online. You can find me on Instagram at hauntscast, or you can join our email list for updates about the show. Thank you again for listening, and until next time, happy haunting. <laughs>